is really just beating this drum. And I was doing it through, here's your situation, here's what I think about your situation, now let me explain and give you piece by piece. But it's really just beating this one drum over and over again and doing it and fleshing it out in, in, in some different ways. Galatians 3, in Galatians 3, and, and in these 10 verses, 15 through 25, what you're getting is, is the, the beating of the same drum with just a, a slight, uh, just a bit more nuance, just a little extra. And it's just, it's, just, it's beautiful because of how crucial this element is. Again, this is, this is why Luther writes his commentary on Galatians. It's why he puts so much focus in this one small letter. Is because not only was this happening in Galatia, but this happens in the church over and over and over again. We will try to somehow believe that God will accept us by what we do, not by what Christ has already done. And we need that one note again, and I've said to you many times, if, in, if you need me to preach something other than the gospel to make my sermons interesting, then you can go somewhere else that doesn't preach the gospel. But what we focus on here is the gospel every week, every time. I, I've, got a, I've got a friend, and he's pumping out the books right now, and I just saw that he has another book coming out in October, and I'm like, goodness sakes, how many times can you talk about grace? And then I went, when do you not talk about grace? Right? I mean, what else are you going to talk about? Unless, unless we understand the grace of God and, and sort of uh, see all the different facets of that one beautiful diamond that is God's grace and all that that entails, which is an awful lot. You know, you can really flesh it out to so many different ways. But unless we see every facet of it, it doesn't have the fullness of the beauty as the light shines upon that particular under, that idea or that the, the scriptures that teach that particular aspect of God's gospel. So in, in Galatians, we're getting this beautiful one note being played over and over, and it's kind of growing and swelling. And it's, it's, it's being done in particular because the Galatian church needs it beaten into them. There, there's, there's lots of times in my marriage where Molly will kind of look at me like, I understand why are you continuing to go on and on about that one point. And of course, the reason is because she's so dull of hearing and I'm so smart, right? Obviously. Um, but, I, you know, that's, that's that moment where I'm like, uh, yeah, I guess there's a point where you got to let it go. Maybe when the person is really sorry and asking your forgiveness. Um, yeah, some of you are already, like there's elbows flying from husbands and wives right now. Um, the violence in the room. I'm, uh, I would apologize for it, but it's well-deserved. So, um, yeah, th they need this. They need this drummed into them because they're not easily just going, oh, well, if Paul would write us a letter and say we need to do this instead of this, then we'll just be fine with that. He realizes how deeply rooted their, their um, alterations of the gospel have become because they've been continuing to hear and to receive the words of the false teachers who are teaching them to add law to grace, to add law to our justification, to, to somehow make our justification not just by um, faith alone, grace alone, all of that, but to make it through what we do. So he gives them this human, exa human example. This, here's, what about a man-made covenant? Let's think of a man-made covenant, okay? Man, a man-made promise, some type of legal deal. Um, so you write a will, and 
you don't write a will because you hope to never use it. You write a will because it will be used. You will die, right? Unless Christ comes and then we're all dead and then, you know, good on us for, for getting to be in the presence of God forever. Um, but you write a will, okay? I'm going to give, I'm, I'm, you know, extremely wealthy and so I've got all this inheritance and I want to give it to my children. So I write it in the will that I want to give it to my children. Then I die, you know, when I'm like 140 and I've, you know, used up my Maserati. And so I'm, I've, I've got all this that's left over. It's been put in all these funds and now it's going to go to my children. So they go and they read my will and it says that all this money needs to be given to my four children. Obviously, considering by then, you know, Molly's long gone because, you know, for whatever reason. 140, I mean, she's, she's not going to get there. Um, and neither, neither will I, but you know, so, um, so I write it in my will. It's going to go, it's going to go to the kids. It's our, it's our will where it's going to go to the kids, our four kids. And then we, as the, the will is read, as we've been long gone or we're gone now, the, the legal people read it and go, the money goes to the kids. And then they say, you know what? Not so much. I think we're going to give it to somebody else. That's, that's not good. Like, what good does it do to write a will if somebody's just going to change it at some point later on like that? Once it is ratified, once it's done, once it's finished, once it's official, once it's there, it, I mean, it, you know, we, you can think of laws in terms of, well, laws change if certain things happen and certain government people, the Congress and whatever. It, it's not, that's not what he means. He's saying once that deal has been made, it's not going to be changed because he's not thinking of it in the way of things that would change. He's saying it's, once it's a done deal, it's a done deal. It's going to have to follow through that way. Even in man-made promises, it's going to be done. So somebody goes and makes a movie and it says you're going to get paid so much percentage of the proceeds over time. And then all of a sudden you realize the checks aren't coming in, but it's playing over and over on one of the movie channels. Why am I not getting a check? I'm supposed to be getting paid. So now somebody's in court and they're, they're defrauding the company who made the, the movie and they're saying these guys have promised to pay this money and they have not paid it out and then they'll have to pay. That's how man-made promises, legal stuff works. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And I get that. We're going back to the Abrahamic covenant. If you've been here during the Story of God series, you know what I'm talking about. You know where we are. If you weren't there... Um, the Abrahamic covenant is where God takes Abraham, he slices a bull in half, right? Abraham and puts the two pieces on each side, and then God puts a deep sleep onto Abraham. And then God, the presence of God, walks between the pieces of this dead bull. Why? As if to say, if I break my promise, may I be like this. It, it, it's a way of showing that you've, you know, our... our the whole idea of like, um, well, you know, my guarantee is my handshake. Once I shake your hand, I never go back on my word. Has that ever been broken? <laughs> now, like, whoa, watch out. You know, it's like, yeah, th there's not a whole lot of people that you can trust like that. And even where there are some, we don't trust them because of all the number of people who have done it a different way. Um, it's, it's, it's almost never when you talk about things like... Um, child abuse. It's almost never the person who just comes and just abuses a kid and then leaves. 
it's often the one who is showing so much affection, right? Which is why there needs to be a, a, a kind of awareness that those kinds of things can happen. I have some friends who had um, one of their children abused, and it was by a person in a church who said they loved Jesus and who was like, please let me babysit for your children. And then the daughter began to give details about what happened, and they realized what had gone on, and now he's in jail. The promise to Abraham was a promise that God would so keep that it wasn't that they made an agreement together. It's that God made the agreement alone. you, you got to get that. Abrahamic covenant is not a promise to be kept by Abraham. It is one-sided. As my friend wrote in his book, it is one-way love. One way. Even though you won't love me, I will do something to love you. You see what I'm saying? While we were sinners, what's the next part? Christ died for us. It's one of those verses that kids often learn while they're young because it's nice and short and it's very to the point. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we were good, not while we were looking, not while we were wanting, not while we were desiring, not while we were longing. I continually see people, pastors and authors, people who should know better, evangelists, who are saying the world is so hungry for the gospel. Now, if you mean they're starving without it, I understand. It's just a statement of, of fact that people are going to die because of starvation for the gospel because they don't have it. But to act like, look at all these people, they're just seeking. That's, that's what sin does. We are worshipers at our core. And so we will worship something and we'll always be seeking something. It is the wrong response to say that the whole world is hungry. They're all looking and boy, oh boy, I mean, they're just ready. If I just preach the gospel, they'll just receive it. Really? I've preached the gospel to a lot of people who were seeking something, but they didn't want that. Now it is, nah, you know, the Baha'i stuff's really a lot more cool. You know, Kabbalah, Madonna. <laughs> I'm really going to go with her. I mean, she only looks about, you know, 48 at 52, so, you know. I don't know how old she is. I don't know. But um, 70, I don't remember. Whatever. Close, yeah. Um, she's a material girl, so. Um, <laughs> That's really immaterial. So back, back to the passage. This Abrahamic covenant that God, that God makes, it, he makes it. Abraham doesn't pass through the pieces. God does. And the promise is done. Which means Abraham is not the one who has to go and obey in order to receive. Okay? Very important to get that point. Because he's the example. Now the promises were made to Abraham, verse 16, and to his offspring, and then it says, it does not say to offsprings. Now you might go, well, can't offspring be plural? And the answer is, yes. Okay? It can be. The, you know, I can say my offspring, and who would you say? My four kids. It's plural. It's, and it's okay. Like, this is, this, is, this is helpful for us in biblical interpretation to think, think this through. It does not say, and to offsprings, with an S, but his point is not that we don't say offsprings with an S, or, we, you know, he's not using English. 
What he's saying is, is he's using a word that is singular versus a word that is plural. In other words, he does not, he does not use this kind of plurality when he talks about this. The promises were made to Abraham by God and to his offspring, singular, referring that, uh, not to offspring, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. In other words, how many, how many children were promised to Abraham? Right? Sand, sand in the beach, right? The stars in the sky and, you know, the hairs of your head or the, you know, the... the lice in your whatever, you know, whatever. I mean, just, you know, the, the, the maggots in your corpse. Uh, just think about something that has a lot. Um, somebody, I heard a comedian say, uh, some of you have heard this, um, I really like rice. Uh, it's, a, it's a great food when you want 2,000 of something, you know? Like, it, you, can't, you can't have rice without having a whole, whole bunch and enjoyed rice. Um, and so when you talk about Abraham and his offspring, we think about the promise coming that there would be many who would come as offspring. But Paul is saying here, the same word that can be used in the plural way like that can be understood in the singular way. I'm going to give you another example to try to just make this clear. In Genesis, there is a curse that is put upon Adam and Eve after they sin. Again, remember in the story. And when the curse comes, God says that there is going to be a seed of Eve. Remember in the story? Who is going to do what? Crush the head of the serpent. Crush the head of, uh, we would say, Satan. So there is one coming seed, and yet how many children are born through Eve? Through, through the line of Eve, many, 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 many. So when we talk about seed, we can understand it as through the line of Adam and Eve, that one, it's not their next son necessarily, so they're, they're through the many, there's eventually one. So there's this kind of plurality to it, that it is going to be through this whole line, there would be one. And in the other sense, you can see that it is the line itself, that there is the promise that in humanity there will be one that comes so um, it, it is kind of a, I, I saw one um, commentator say it this way, that the word for offspring can be a collective singular with a plural sense. Isn't that interesting? It, is a, it can be a collective singular with a plural sense. So that when, when, when the word is used for offspring, we can understand it that way. I, I don't want to get again, more deeply into this, but that's the argument that Paul is giving here, and it's not just an argument. Paul is authoritatively showing this is pointing to Christ. There is an offspring, just as there is a seed, and that offspring is Christ. So, the promise comes to Abraham and the offspring. To Abraham and the offspring, who is Christ. Now, this is what I mean. Now, this is always helpful when Paul says, this is what I mean. Because what he means is, this is what I mean. Okay? I'm going to help you understand it. Um, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer comes by a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now, here's what he's, here's what he's saying. 
Get this. The Abrahamic covenant. God makes the promise to Abraham. It is one-sided, one way. It is one person. It is one God who does the work. The promise is made to Abraham and offspring. And in the idea of offspring here, even though we know there is the idea of the offspring being many, there is also the idea of the offspring being the one. There is one who will be that offspring who will come and do this. So you have the Abrahamic covenant, the promise, and then you have the promise given to Moses, or the covenant given to Moses. Here, he says, it's 430 years after. We generally say it's, you know, somewhere around 400 years, somewhere, it's just around there, and there's different ways to understand it. Um, it, it when, when you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament versus, you know, uh, the, the Hebrew Old Testament, sometimes there's some, there's people trying to figure out how do they count? How does Paul decide that 430? I don't want you to get into the figuring of all of that out. It's just not that important. The point is, he's saying this. There is in Abraham the one-sided promise, and when God comes and gives the covenant to Moses, he's not changing that. He's not overcoming that by something else. He is not having it take place of that. And, and I've, as I said during the Story of God series, as we talked about these covenants and tried to make sure you guys understood those well, I've had people, really prominent people, who've basically tried to make the argument with me, you know what, you have the promise to Abraham and the promise to Moses, and they're really all just the same promise. And that is so radically wrong. It is devastatingly wrong. If you do that, either you have to never really teach about it, because otherwise you're just going to really mess it up. Or you have to just bypass so much of other stuff being said, specifically things like Galatians. And it's crucial because the covenant with Abraham is God-sided, one-sided. The covenant with Moses is two-sided. And if you disobey, there are consequences. Why this is so important is because you can get an entirely different religion if you just go with the covenant to Moses, and Israel didn't just go with the covenant of Moses. This is what's so crucial. We do not look back at Israel and go, well, they had the law, but we have grace. There's some elements of truth to that. They, they did have the law, and we don't have the law like they had it. But look at the law. Look at the, look at the things that summarize the law, like the Ten Commandments. Do we generally keep the Ten Commandments? Not keep it, but do we generally think that we should keep the Ten Commandments? Yeah, I mean, yes. That's, we are to do the key things of the law. When Jesus summarizes the law, again, what is it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbors, yourself is the second you know, most important. So those, those ideas kind of summarize the whole thing. Yes, we, we don't take that away. You go back into the Sermon on the Mount, and you have Jesus saying, you've heard it said, do this, and now I'm saying, do this. And he makes it sound harsher or harder to keep. So he's not nullifying the law. He's fulfilling the law. And yet at the same time, and, to, and I'm just going to be really honest, there's, there is a, in Christianity right now, there's kind of this argument going on among really good people on both sides. And the argument is, is kind of like, man, we should only talk about grace. As if grace is merely the God loves you part. But you can't know that God loves you unless you know why God shouldn't. Do you understand? Because God's love is done in sacrifice. You don't just say, 
God loves you so much that Jesus died, man. Look at him. He's really emotional about it. God loves you that much. It's like you, you, you um, hear these pop songs. It's like, man, I love you so much. Like, I would die for you. Like, really? Because then somebody else will be living with that person and loving that person. They're going to marry him, not you. Congratulations. That's really romantic as you decay. <laughs> like, I don't, what is that? We have this idea. We hear it in pop songs all the time. The idea of, uh, and if you guys don't listen to, to pop music, I don't, I'm not telling you to go listen to it. But I listen to it enough that I can tell you that the most common thread in songs, some of them have even been banned after the Sandy Hook shootings. Like the idea of, hey man, we're at the, we're at the club and things are really awesome and you're super hot and so am I, by the way. And so let's just live as if there's no tomorrow. Who cares about the consequences? It is blatant. It is so blatant that there were certain songs that got taken off the radio for a while after a bunch of little kids die because, of course, that's ridiculous. So why is that sentiment so important to us? There, there is a sense in which we have a, a culture that is completely beaten down by the idea of the law, and there's a sense in which we have such an entitlement kind of culture in which we demand grace. We demand that we're accepted. I mean, just look at the conversation right now with, with homosexuality. And if anybody here struggles, and I'm just telling you this, anybody struggles with same-sex attra attraction, I'm not trying to say this to, to act like I'm any better. Trust me, pride is way worse. I'm, I'm telling you. It's way worse. Homosexuality is not blunt, bluntly given in the Ten Commandments, but lying is. Right? So... I just want to be really careful because as, as preaching gets to more and more ears, there will be more and more people who are going to go, boy, that seems like a not compassionate position. And I just want to say the gospel is for all of us. And it's the person who's lied one time in their life that will go to hell as well as the open homosexual, as well as the, you know, the person who's having multiple affairs, as well as just continue to go on. But there's this there's this thing going on, and I, 20 years ago, I remember getting a, a tape. A tape is this little cassette-looking thing <laughs> that has these little wheels on the inside, and you put it on this machine, and it ran this thing. It's tape. It's kind of like scotch tape, except it's not sticky. And it's got this kind of magnetic element to it, and you have this thing that reads it. I, it's really weird. I can't even hardly explain it, because it doesn't really exist in, in, in you know, reality anymore. But so, so I got this tape, and on this tape was teaching by uh, this guy, and he was basically saying, um, the, the, new, um, the new thing, the thing that's coming, and it, he wasn't the first one to say it, but it was the one that got popularized, and so more, more people heard it from him. But the idea of tolerance is no longer that everybody must be allowed to live their lives, but that you have to respect it. You have to be okay with it. You have to think it's okay for whatever their particular lifestyle is. Now, of course, that's hypocritical. Because the minute their next-door neighbor goes, I really like to cook and eat other humans, you're going to go, I am very intolerant of that. <laughs> okay? If you're not, then let's have a discussion through glass, right? Um, yeah, Hannibal Lecter-ish kind of thing, right? Um, 
the idea is that there is, it is now, and more so now than ever, after we talked about some of the inauguration stuff a few weeks back, and if you weren't here for that, I'm not going to rehash it, but the idea that now in, in the public square it is no longer acceptable to have traditional Christian faith and values and, and morality and God's truth and God's law and God's understanding of right and wrong. And if you have those things, you now are intolerant, a bigot, a misogynist. I've, I've been called some of those things because I believe in traditional biblical things. And so we have to understand that there's, there's when you talk about the covenants, and, and, and some of you are going, but we're, okay, so we're just in this time, Christ has come, why are we dealing with all of this? And the reason we're dealing with it is not because we're going to do what the Galatians did and bring the Old Testament law back upon us, at least not in a specific way, like we're going to say, let's mesh Christianity with Judaism or something like that, but that every one of us does it. You just don't use, like, God's written law necessarily. You can, and some do uh, in, in, in other ways, but that you think that your morality is what's going to make you okay, and this is to drive home the point that it does not. Because the promise, to get this, this is why. It's why your morality is not good enough. The promise was given to Abraham, and God keeps it. The Mosaic Covenant was for a specific nation and a specific people, and it is given that is meant to be temporary. It's not meant to be forever. Even though the laws there, many of the, the, the moral laws are just God's moral truths and moral laws of all time. And so that's why you have things like the Ten Commandments that seem to have a, a separated, uh, a kind of a liftedness to it, as well as other laws like don't eat shrimp. Don't eat shrimp makes you a specific people, uh, different than the other nations, which they couldn't eat shellfish, right? Old Testament. But don't lie or don't steal or don't kill is true for all people, all time, and all places. And, and so while the law and the covenant of Moses that God gives to Moses, it has to be kept by God and by us, and there's consequences if we disobey, that is not how we understand the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is one-sided because it only comes to people who disobey. Get that! The only hope you have in that God will keep his, covenant, uh, his promise to Abraham and to his offspring, Christ, the only hope you have is that it comes by God alone and by nothing else you do. Which is why faith alone is the idea. Because by faith, you're not doing something, it's your, you're admitting only he can do it, only he did it in Christ. So this is crucial to understand. So let me reread starting in, uh, let's say, 17. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, the law comes after the promise to Abraham. The law, when he talks about the law, he means Moses, the covenant to Moses, the, the law given to Moses. It comes 430 years after Abraham. It does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. The covenant to Moses does not come to say the previous one's void. In other words, it's not linear. This is crucial. It's not linear. Oh, there's the promise to Abraham. Now let's take some steps. Like the little yodeling guy on The Price is Right. Yo, no, yo, yo, yo. Right? Okay, did anybody see that? Come on. <clears throat> Maybe we want to take that out of the recording. 
So, so he goes up. He doesn't go, oh, look, you know, there's a brook. I need to go over this way, or here's this rock, and I need to go this way, which is what, how you really go up a mountain. But in, in, in the game, you know, it's just this one stream up to the top. And it's, it's not like that with the covenants of God. The Abrahamic covenant is the big one. It's, it's global. It's, it, it's for all people who've ever lived who put their faith in the God who makes the promise. The Mosaic covenant was limited to a, a people, and it was there in order to create a people as an incubator for an offspring. You get the terminology now. It's there. The law is there to create a people who would incubate the offspring. That was promised to Abraham. That was promised to Eve. For if inheritance comes by the law, it, is no longer, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So in other words, this is, goes all the way back to the beginning of Galatians. Paul is saying to the Galatians, if you started by faith, if you started with trusting God's grace, if you started by saying Christ did it all, then why all of a sudden are you saying now I've got to do in order to be accepted by God? The minute you say I've got to do to be accepted by God, not because I'm accepted by God, but to be accepted by God or to continue to be accepted, there's a whole branch, you know, there's a whole, not, not necessarily just one branch, but there are branches of Christianity in which they think you can lose your salvation. Catholicism believes you can lose your salvation. It's works righteousness. It's, it's why it's so wickedly Christian. And this is what's, it's hard for us sometimes because people that call themselves Christians, we kind of want to just accept everybody. And then you start doing that. Just trust me, you start doing that, you'll start to go, but what about the good people? And then what about the people who have never heard or that are on some island somewhere and no missionaries come? And you keep going on and on and on. We all deserve hell. God is sovereign. He's in control. And he can send a missionary anywhere he wants to save somebody. You understand? Okay? So, the inheritance comes, if the, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it doesn't, right? Get it? The inheritance, if you think about the in terms of uh, uh, of the will, the inheritance does not come by the law. If, if, I've got to reread this. 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer by the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So, God did not give the law in order to bring the fulfillment of Christ. It, it, in other words, you don't keep the law and then you deserve it. The law was there to be the incubator for Christ. Not only for the nation of Israel, but we're going to find out for us as well. Let's continue on. Why then the law? If the law doesn't get us anywhere with God, because that's what it seems like he's saying, right? So what, so what are you doing? God gives us a law that can't get us anywhere? It can't, it can't, it can't save us? It can't make us right? It can't, what, what's the law for? So why then the law? It is added because of transgressions. Hear this. The law was added because of transgressions. It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now, Paul, in those last couple of verses there, it's like, okay, wait, what? Where are you going? Angels, intermediary, what's going on? And so it can kind of bring this, but I'll, I'll just try to make it nice and simple here. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. What, what does that mean? It can, it can mean several things. 
It, it could mean that we need a sacrifice. So uh, in the Old Testament, the law was given, and what immediately started to happen? A sacrificial system is put into place in order to show this is, how we, this is where we place our faith. Not because uh, a lamb itself is going to be able to take away our sin, but because it symbolizes the lamb who would eventually come to take away our sin. And so we have our faith in the God who is going to take away our sin, and that lamb is the symbol of the coming lamb who is going to take away our sin. So it can be about a sacrificial system that's established. It can be used um, to, to teach clearly um, what God requires, you know, the right and wrongness of things. And so, you know, it's put there because of transgressions. The law is added in order to show us the rightness and wrongness of things. Um, it could be to, to, you know, to teach us that transgressions violate God's uh, written decrees. It's there in order to show us that God is not just, it's an idea that we have that God does this, but it's, it's really on paper now. It's, it's, you know, it's very official. It's stated right there. Now your neighbor can say it to each other. Because we can talk about the law written in our hearts or in our consciences, that kind of idea. But you go to somebody else and say, hey, it's wrong for you to lie. And they're like, it's not that simple. You know, and there's, there's reasons it's okay to lie. You know, and that's, we go through ethics classes to try to teach us how to work out those kinds of arguments. The, a, a last idea is, is that this could be said this way. The law was given because of transgressions in order to reveal our sinfulness and our need of a Savior. To reveal our sinfulness and our need of a Savior. Why then the law? To reveal that we're sinful. It's because of transgressions. It's to reveal that they are transgressions. Now there's, a, there's this standard that is written and it's given to us to make us go, I'm breaking that. It's not, when somebody says, I follow all the law, then they don't follow all the law. Because the law is not there in order to, to complete it and then you're, you've done it. The law is there because you can't complete it. Get, get that point. Yes, it helps to bring order in society and things like that, uh, law in general, and the God-specific law to bring to bring order to God's society, God's people, Israel. But when that is done, when that is given, it is done not because everybody's going to just keep the law. It's done because by giving the law, it's going to show that you're not keeping the law. And he's going to very specifically show how that's, what that looks like in a second. So it was added because of transgressions, which I think it can mean all the things that I mentioned, but I think it's primarily there to show us our sin and to point us to a Savior. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and was put in place by angels through an intermediary. Um, now, some say, you know, Moses, the intermediary here, exactly what does this mean? Um, commentators are, are fairly unified, but it's just the, the use of the kind of language here, angels and the intermediary, is a little bit odd and it's it's not used in other places and so when you when you have something like that you want to go let's just be careful not to make too much out of it that the point even paul kind of goes back and says an intermediary implies more than one but god is one you, you see what i'm saying it, you can you can kind of look at it in different ways but even paul sort of he doesn't retract what he said he's simply trying to say yeah it, it the, there's the implication of its meaning more than that but that's not my point he says he's trying to make sure you get the point and that's why he goes into verse 21 is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given 
to those who believe. Okay, so uh, when you have Scripture, and, and specifically, you know, when this is written, people would think of the Scripture as the Old Testament, and in general, we would talk about the Old Testament as the, the Torah or the law. We think of it as the law. Even though there are historical writings and other things, um, we still kind of can think of it that way, and the Jews um, would uh, still think of it in, in that way. So, when you, when you speak of it that way, you, you go, okay, so is the law contrary to the promises of God? God gave the promise and the law contrary to it. He promises to Abraham, but he gives the law in order to show transgressions, in order to reveal sinfulness. Why would he give the promise to Abraham and then give something to show our sinfulness? And that can be the question. Why don't you give the promise to Abraham and then just love us? That's kind of the idea. And does it seem like actually quite a bit of Christianity? What people do? What, what, what's one of the most famous evangelistic sayings that you could say? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It starts there. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's not the best place to start because there's a lot of people who aren't going to have any sort of plan with God. That's why when, when I talk to people about the gospel, I'll, talk about, I'll go back to creation, and I'll talk about sin, and I'll talk about you know, the consequences of that sin, and then of God making the promise to, to do, to take care of those consequences, and then he actually fulfills that promise in Christ, the offspring, the one who's to come, the one who's going to receive that promise that has been given to Abraham and his offspring. So, is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For the law that has been given could give life, then righteousness would be by the law. If, if the law could give life, it would give life. Okay, not, not complicated, right? If it could give life, it would give life, but the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, meaning the law, Scripture, the written law. The Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that, this is the purpose. It sounds almost cruel, doesn't it? So the Scriptures imprison us? yes. Not because you weren't in prison before, but because it reveals the prison. I mean, how awful would it be to, to live your whole life in this dream that you're, that you're living in the paradise, that everything around you is beautiful, and not to realize it's really a prison? It's exactly where people are in this world. All over the world, in all sorts of countries, in all sorts of ways, in so many different ways, there's no possible way I'd even try to explain what it looks like. But right now, every, you know, TV talk shows and radio shows and, and, and sports things and all, everybody's trying to find functional saviors, functional idols, something that will get them by, something that will make them feel like their life is worth living and that things are good enough, you know, even without all the mess and all the problems and all the pain, still life is still this so wonderful thing. And it is... At, the peak of danger to have that position, and it is painful for you to go into someone's demand that this is actually better than I think it is. It is so painful for you to go to them and say, I want you to know that everything you think is giving you freedom is actually shackles. Everything you think that is beautiful scenery are actually prison walls. I mean, that's... When, when some of you heard the gospel for the first time, you didn't immediately accept it. Some of you, when you heard it, were like, okay, this doesn't seem right. So, okay, 
everything I was going to do before, now I have to maybe give up if he wants me to, and then, you know, uh, I, I have to then obey him for the rest of my life. That doesn't sound like a whole lot of freedom. But obedience to God means doing exactly what he created you to do since he's the one who made you. So now you're, you have the freedom to function like you're always meant to function and that you're malfunctioning in, the, in society as it is. You're actually imprisoned and he's the one who sets you free and the freedom of God are the shackles of Christ. It's the cross of Christ. It's to be nailed on the cross with Christ. So the law, the scripture, imprisons us under sin for the purpose of so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. I want to put shackles on you so that you get it, that you're already shackled. But until you see the shackles, so you know you're in prison, you won't look for the only one who can take you out. The law of God is holy. It is good. It is important. It is crucial. Even now today, 2,000 years after Christ came and fulfilled the law, we don't go around never talking about the law. Without the law, you'll never get someone to understand God's grace, the justification that comes by faith, the good things, the, the promise by faith in Christ Jesus that will be given to those who believe can't come unless you are imprisoned. Verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming, coming faith would be revealed. Before faith came, now get this. This is really important, and this is where a lot of people get messed up. Before faith came, and then you're going to go, okay, now Pastor Steve, you were just telling us that, you know, last week I said it, in the Old Testament people are saved How? By faith. In the New Testament, they're saved how? By faith. In the Old Testament, it points forward to the coming seed, the coming offspring, the coming Savior, the coming suffering servant, the coming, you know, whatever. The coming king, the coming, you know, the, the true and better David, the true and better Moses, the true and better prophet, the true and better king. So you have, you have all of this. It's all by faith. But this says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. So could it be that in the Old Testament everybody had the law and they were shackled to it and oh, woe is me, the law is here and that's all there is. And then eventually Christ comes and we have faith. It seems like it could be read that way. Here's the problem and this is the thing that makes it so simple to explain and should never make you question the fact that it's, it would, there was faith before. Who is the example of faith? Abraham. Before Moses. Now you see, the law that is given is not overcoming what's done by Abraham. It's always by the faith in the Abrahamic covenant that there was the one offspring that would come. And now looking back, that the Abrahamic covenant was fulfilled in Christ because the offspring came. Do you understand? I, I need you to get this clearly. So that the, the whole scope, listen, it's not just like, well, this is, this is history. And I'm just not really a history buff. This is how it happened and how it happens for us. Because there are still people who don't obey the law, and there are still people who are shackled to their own type of morality. There, you Find somebody who says, I'm just accepted by God because he just accepts me, and you don't know anything about Christ. You just don't find people who are talking about that. It's always, I think I do more good than bad. They're still shackled to morality, just like people could be with the law. The problem is, is now in our culture, 
since we have no law of God that's there, I'm not saying go put the Ten Commandments up at the, you know, the city hall. It's not what I'm saying, and it's not the point. That's not going to accomplish anything, except somebody's going to have to carve granite and pay a bunch of money. What they need is a preacher to tell them what the law is. Now, there's one common misconception with this. I just want to deal with that, which is that doesn't mean you just go read the Ten Commandments and say, have you ever lied? Have you ever cheated? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever, you know, looked after a woman or a man that way? Have you ever done this thing? Have you ever not loved God? It's, it doesn't mean you just kind of hurry up and do that for about 30 seconds and then say, okay, you've broken the law. Now here's God. It's not that simple. It's not like that uh, package. That's not the point. You don't see that in the New Testament scriptures, that that's the way it's done. There's some prominent people out there who are doing that sort of thing. Their initials are Kirk Cameron and, you know, some other guys. So, and I, I'm not saying he's not a Christian or a great guy, because I do think he is. But there are people out there who are, uh, and he, he didn't develop it, Ray Comfort did, and, and, um, and I'm thankful to God that these guys are out there spreading the gospel. Um, I'm just not... They're just taking this a little too weirdly. And so we just got to be careful. We are still preaching the law, but you just can't come in and expect people to hear the Ten Commandments and go, that has anything to do with my life. Why? You're just going to take some ancient thing and just kind of throw it out there all of a sudden. But you can do this just everyday stuff that people already know. Because the law is here. We, we, that's why people that have no concept of Jesus or God or Christ can still feel incredibly guilty over certain things that they do. Because as much as we try to suppress those things, and we do, there are still the, the, the working of God in us, the, the, uh, the law and then our own guilt. We try to heal it in other ways, but when the Spirit comes, He shows us how it can truly be healed in Christ and in Christ alone. So before faith came... We were held captive under the imprison and, and imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed, meaning the fullness of the faith is going to be revealed in Christ. When, when Christ comes, now we understand what that faith was for. And when before faith came, it simply means before we had the actual one that we would place our faith in. We're placing our faith in the promise before and in the fulfillment, the reality, and we can name it. We can name him the one that we place our faith in, where before we couldn't name him in quite the same way, although there were names given to point toward him. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Not that we were just justified by the law. The law was not our guardian so that we could be justified by the law. The law was our guardian so that we could be justified by faith. Now, we think of a guardian as somebody who protects or somebody who oversees, somebody who whatever, um, but the idea here is that it, it, it is a painful sometimes tutor, guardian. It is, it is, a, it is a thing that is given to, uh, to highlight our sin. It's to, it's to sort of show it, to reveal it. Have you ever had, you know, someone, like now that I have like this beard, you know, beards are just like, it's like a, a duster, you know, it just goes and picks up things. It picks up food, it picks up just stuff, right? It just, there's all sudden things on it. And so it's not, it's not very often with my family, but every once in a while, like I look in a mirror and I'll go, oh, like I should probably not have that.
color of mustache on my mustache, right? It needs to be, it needs to be washed. So you just, you, sometimes you just you can't feel it, you don't know it until you have been revealed it. And so the law is there to reveal something so that if we have our sin revealed, what do we get? We get to see who the offspring is, and we get to know that we put faith in the offspring, namely Jesus Christ. We are no longer under a guardian for, we are, or, sorry, I'm reading the wrong verse. In order that we might be justified by faith, the law is given in the guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. If you have now put your faith in Christ, what good is a guardian leading you to Christ? The guardian is to lead you to Christ, not to be added to Christ. You don't say, I've got Jesus, let me add the guardian back. Like, what? I've graduated, or so to speak, right? I mean, it's, we don't now put the shackles of the law, the scripture, and the sin back on because Christ has taken them off. What are we being reshackled for? Now we are free. It's a great theme that's coming up as we keep moving through to Galatians, the freedom that we now have in Christ. Let me just close this way. I'm going to close with a quote. Um, if you haven't read any books by uh, John Stott, who's now um, uh, gone, um, but a guy who's written some amazing things, in his commentary on the book of Galatians and in this section, he says this, and I want you to get this. I need you to, I need you to listen. I need you to pay attention. I want you to hear this. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear. And it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear. Go ahead, go outside and try to find the stars. Right? Do you, do you ever say to somebody, let's go stargazing. It's noon. Do you ever, has anybody ever said that? If you are a moron, right? Okay, then you might say that. Um, or just deluded, or you happen to be on the other side of the world and your watch is set wrong. Okay, something like that. But it is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear. Without the background of blackness, you'll never have those stars shine forth. And it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. Go, you go and try to tell people about the gospel, and there are churches this morning who are doing that very thing. They're working extremely hard to not mention sin, to when they talk about sin, to speak it of as generally as possible so you don't offend anybody. It is offensive to sinners who want to stay sinners, to people who rebel from God. You're being told you are a rebel from God. That doesn't sound like something that's going to make me happy. Really? Let's go have lunch. I'm a rebel from God? You're saying everything I've ever done in my life has been wrong and God won't accept me and I'm going to hell? Let's share food, right? I mean, you just don't go, that's the person I feel like spending a lot of time with. When I'm around them, I feel guilty. The, result, the, the, the resulting thing should not be, well, I don't want to be around that person because they make me feel guilty, but I want to believe in the person he believes in or she believes in because they make me feel not guilty. They make me feel forgiven. Because once I've admitted that that's who I am, and I see sin and judgment and the blackness of it, Christ shines. 
The only way to preach the gospel, whether it's me preaching to you or preaching to a million people or, you know, whatever it would be, or it's you preaching to one person, if you don't put the gospel against a black background of sin and judgment, it cannot and will not be heard. We need the law. Not because we need to follow the law after we know Christ, but we need the law to guide us to Christ. And that might be as simple as saying, look at the way you're treating your child. Look at, look at the way you haven't been compassionate toward that person that you know, is asking you for something. Look at the way that you're treating your classmates. Sometimes I'll talk to one of my kids about something they did, and you'll see their face just like, you know, and what you don't want to do is go, now go be better. I mean, you do, but it can't just be that. It needs to be now. Trust Christ. And he'll not only take away that guilt you feel, but he can motivate you to go and to be looking at your friend at school or whoever it is for our, in our lives differently and treat them differently and love them better, not to be accepted by God, but because we're already accepted by God. Would you stand with me for closing prayer?